was noticing in the paper this morning, today's headlines, and on the front page of the Charlotte Observer, there is an article about a criminal investigation into the activities of the governor. Later in the paper, there's a front page of another section, an article about the criminal proceedings and civil proceedings against someone whose sworn duty was to serve and protect and how he misused the office. You know how badly we need Christ's return. We've been thinking about that a great deal in the last, uh, you know, two weeks. We've been at the feast. We've been having our mind focused on God's soon coming government and what it will mean for us individually and for our friends and for our neighbors and for our families and for nations when God's government is applied perfectly around the earth. And yet, as we step back into our routines, we, we experience that bit of culture shock. I'd like to pose the question to ask, how are you different now than you were two weeks ago? What impact will this feast have in your life? Well, this afternoon I would like to focus on the impact that the feast should have in our lives. The feast should have an impact in our lives. It should have a changing effect. You know, we yearn, now that the feast is over, we yearn for the fulfillment of what those days represent. We're not blue and filled with sorrow, missing the good times from last week. No, we are focused on the future. We're yearning, looking forward to the time when those days will be fulfilled. You know, that is such a contrast that we have, that we have the blessing of experiencing in God's church an understanding of His truth and what these days, these holy days that we've just finished observing, what they represent. Compare that, contrast that with the days that so many who take the label of Christian and, and well-meaning, but the days that they are preparing to celebrate. I remember years ago having an office in Lafayette, and I noticed that my employees were very excited they didn't understand the truth, and they were very excited about Christmas, and were talking about Christmas for, you know, a couple weeks ahead of time. As soon as Christmas was over and it was back to work time, it was like this blue funk hung there in the office. <laughs> they came dragging in, and there was a sorrow. There was an emptiness that they had. You know, what a contrast that it makes as we have celebrated the days that God has commanded and we have returned energized. We have returned invigorated, recharged, revived, renewed. We're filled with excitement. Not used up and spent, 
but instead filled with excitement and looking ahead. You know, we have enjoyed such abundance during the feast because God commanded us to appear before Him so that we might learn to fear Him and that we might rejoice before Him. And He provided a way so that we could do that and not go in debt. That we could do that and come back knowing that you know everything was paid for. We're not having to worry about, now how am I going to pay for that hotel bill? <laughs> or that restaurant tab? You know, God's enabled us to understand His tithing system that He has provided so that we might learn to serve Him, to fear Him, to rejoice before Him. You know, as we think about the Feast of Tabernacles and we think about what makes it so special, you know, as you visit with your family and friends and ask them, you know, what made this feast so special for you? What were some of the highlights in your feast? You know, I enjoyed discussing that with my wife and I with our girls to find out, you know, what were, what were the highlights for you? You know, the highlight for us in this room is not just the fact that we were at a beautiful vacation destination. You know, that's extra. That's just a fringe benefit. The real excitement, the real elements that make the feast so special really have to do not with the activities of which there were a lot and, and exciting. doesn't just have to do with the fact that we have uh, a special physical abundance at that time. That helps. That adds. But the real joy, the real um, element that makes the feast so special is the fellowship that we have with one another of like mind, all focusing on the same thing, all being fed the same spiritual diet. You know, what a concentrated dosage. You know, instead of just one sermon per week, here in the space of those eight days, we heard, you know, close to a dozen sermons and Bible studies. And how exciting that is. Understanding that the physical enjoyment, peace, abundance is but a shadow of what is coming. It represents what lies ahead. The most exciting thing is not what just finished, but what lies just beyond. We understand that God's plan is revealed through His holy days. The plan that He is working out on this earth. The explanation, the answer to the question of why you were born. It's a question that so many want to know the answer to that struggle and search for the answer for. And yet, they, they're grasping at straws. Many of them recognize that, that, that the answer is just elusive. And so some conclude that we're just not meant to know. It's, it's something that we can't figure out. And they're half right. We can't figure it out on our own. It requires God's Spirit working with us. 
to remove that veil from the mind that Satan has blinded the minds of the whole world. That we're able to understand the purpose that God is working out. That His holy days that we look forward to, that He has commanded us to observe, that there, that they, as we keep that, as we do that, that they enable us to understand His purpose in our lives, His purpose for mankind. You know, by contrast, the days that, you know, our, our friends and neighbors, those that don't have an understanding of God's Word, the days that they have that Satan has deceived them into accepting and embracing, they're empty. They don't foreshadow anything. They don't picture and look forward to anything. You know, And it's not a secret. This is not a special truth that the church of God has. You know, the Encyclopedia Britannica understands, and many understand, and newspapers around the country at these times coming up to Christmas We'll have articles about the pagan origins of those days. They don't look to anything. They don't instruct about anything. You know, in fact, the the day that uh, as, as we were driving back home yesterday and driving to Atlanta, they've got these huge billboards. Something about uh, the netherworld and, you know, all, all this stuff geared around Halloween. What What big business. You know, a festival that has as its origins, you know, something that can trace, be traced back to the Tower of Babel. You know, and just what a contrast between the origin of those days and the origin of the days that we just finished celebrating. You know, God said, I command you to appear before me and I command you to do this for, for our benefit. We understand that the spring holy days begin teaching us about God's plan with the need for Christ's sacrifice and the putting away from sin from our lives. That Pentecost, the Feast of First Fruits, that God's Spirit poured out. That we, that we have the opportunity to be first fruits for God's family, for God's spiritual harvest. Then the fall holy days, the highlight of our year, Representing, looking forward to the time when Christ will return to this earth. When Satan, the God of this world, will be bound, contained, put away. And his evil and wicked and hurtful, destructive influence will be removed. You know, what a joyous time. When the time when all who have ever lived and never understood most of whom having never even heard the name Jesus Christ, will be raised and have an opportunity for the first time to understand the words of this book and how it applies in their lives. We'll have the opportunity to help others understand God's Word. You know, as we go through these days, as we finish those these days that have just been completed, as we reflect on them, our appetites are whetted. You know, you walk into a house, men, you walk into the house and your wife has been cooking and you can smell that aroma when you walk in the door and it whets the appetite. Or perhaps 
You know, as you pull into the parking lot of a, of a favorite restaurant and you can smell those wonderful savory smells, it whets the appetite. It makes you even more anticipate what's just ahead. Now, that's the effect that God's holy days, that the Feast of Tabernacles should have and does have in our lives. It's a reminder on our purpose in life. How easy it is as we re-engage with our daily routine, how easy it is to get caught up in the details. And yet we have these reminders. Our appetite is whetted. We receive instruction. We learn. We forget. You know, it's important that we be reminded and we learn. We're taught. Let's turn to Matthew, the 13th chapter. Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to notice a parable that relates to how we should capitalize on an inspiring feast. We should capitalize on an inspiring feast. In Matthew chapter 13, Christ uh, will begin in verse 3. Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So as Christ gave this parable of the sower and the seed, He described that the same seed was sown in a variety of environments. Some fell on good ground. Some fell by the wayside. Some fell on stony earth. Let's notice the, the explanation, beginning in verse 18. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a little while, or only for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives sowed, he who receives seed on the good ground, is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So these different ones that receive the seed, that hear God's word. You know, some hear it and they uh, they don't really understand it. And Satan come and, and make sure that they are 
stay confused, that they're not able to have the light bulb go off. They're not able to understand the precious gift that God has for us now and the the gift that He has for us yet ahead. You know, others receive it and there's this burst, this flourish of activity. And yet, because on our own, under our own power, by our own strength, we're not able to do very much. So it has to go deeper than us. It has to go beyond, you know, us individually. You know, some it's describing, some have this emotional response, but it's not deeper. It's an emotional response. There is a joy there. There's this act, flourish of activity. And yet, it doesn't go deep. And so when the sun come out, comes out, when there are difficulties, they wither. You know, as we re-engage with our regular routines, there will be difficulties that come along. Our adversary does not give up easily. Now, we know God's Word reveals a way that we can draw close to God in such a way we can resist our adversary in such a way that He actually turns and flees from us. But again, that's not under our power. That's under God's Spirit. It describes some who received the, the seed, and yet all of the glittering lights, the shiny objects, the things that Satan has sprinkled throughout this world, the deceitfulness of sin. You know, there is a pleasure of sin, but it lasts for a season. It's temporary. You know, what a contrast with the pleasures that come from God's way of life. The pleasures that come from this world come to an end. They have a bitter aftertaste. The pleasures that come from God's Word, there is no bitter aftertaste. It gets sweeter and sweeter. It gets better and better. And that joy builds and grows until we're filled with it. You know, and then there are those that receive the seed and it bear fruit in great abundance. You know, brethren, we have been energized by the festivals. As we have returned, we have returned with energy, with enthusiasm, with zeal. We've been hearing, meditating on God's Word, His government that will be established on this earth, our part in that now, and to come. You know, as we have thought about that, we have been filled with an energy, with a zeal, with a passion, with a drive, with a desire to be there at Christ's return. Let's make sure that we are directing that energy into action. Not just an emotional response that now we're back to our routine and we've got the grind that starts on Monday. The 
you know, this life and its cares and its attractions will kind of cause things to choke. But know that instead that we have this invigorating drive and energy and we're channeling it in such a way that it produces a result that we're focused on deepening our roots in God's Word. That the fruits that we're bearing don't come from within. They come from the result of Christ living His life in us. We should set goals for growth. God gives us reminders, some annually, some weekly. We're here on a weekly reminder that this world and the 6,000 years that God has given to mankind to pursue man's way, that it will come to an end. And it will usher in then at Christ's return. A 1,000 year period of rest for mankind when man will have the opportunity to learn God's way, to apply it, to reap the abundance from it. Set goals for your growth. Not just fuzzy goals that, well, I want to be closer to God. That's great, we should be. Break it down. Make it something that is concrete. Something that you can check up on later. Before long, we will have the spring holy days. We're looking forward to those. Make yourself goals that as we come up to God's annual reminders, His festivals, His holy days, that we can get those reminders, those goals out, those goal cards, whatever, and review our progress and see, you know, are we making progress towards our goals? Our spiritual goals. Goals goals for our development. Goals for service to others. Think about how you can set goals for service. Goals for your growth and development. Goals for drawing close to God. And use the holy days as progress checkpoints. You know, as, as you do that, you'll be among this last group that Christ talked about who received the, the Word. And they brought forth fruit abundantly. You know, that's the group that we want to be a part of. Those that are bearing good fruit One of the ways that as we think about those goals, as we think about our ultimate goal, that we should meditate on it throughout the year. You know, not just at the Holy Day time, but throughout the year. That it should always be in our mind so that we are continually, everywhere we look, seeing a contrast between this way of life, this society... And the society that we look forward to. Between the world today and the world ahead. Let's turn to Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4. It's Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. 
You know, as we think about what it will be like at that time, contrast that with what we see around us today. You know, locally, our government and nationally, they're scrambling trying to figure out how to pay for uh, the obligations that they have obligated themselves to. How to pay for various services so they can raise taxes and they can play little uh, games and gimmicks with accounting. You know, here, uh, not far from here, from the office, we've, in, in the town of Matthews, they have this big, beautiful building, this library building. And now they're open about half the time to conserve money. You know, what a, what a shining example of man's folly. And yet, what a contrast to the world that we look forward to. And we read about in scriptures like this and others, Micah chapter 4 and verse 1, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. You know that God's government will be established around the world. It won't be isolated geographically. It won't be in one little area. It won't be one small little kingdom. His government will be around the whole earth. And people will flow to it. They will be attracted to it. You know, like iron to a magnet. It's just drawn to it. You, you wave that magnet by and it, you know, those nails or whatever it is, they just leap up to that magnet. You know, the time is coming when God's government is going to be established and people will flow to it. They will be drawn to it. You know, today, people, particularly when we're together at the feast, recognize that there's something different about us, about our group, that we were happy, that when we leave the meeting hall, they don't have to come in with great big trash bags and get all the junk out because we do a good job of picking up after ourselves. They notice that. They notice certain things about us, certain results that come from following God's government, from following God's way of life. And yet, right now, there's a lot they don't understand. They don't understand between here and there. They, they wish they could, uh, you know, have some of what we have yet without, without having to do any of this. And yet what they don't understand is that this is what makes that possible. But the time is coming when people will understand that connection and they will be drawn to it. They will want those results in their lives and they will understand that it comes through applying God's Word in their lives. And they will desire it. They will want it. They won't be preoccupied with how little can I do? You know, what will God let me do? You know, the, the idea that so many have is that God wants to, He's this big ugly ogre and He tries to keep people from having fun. Well, that's ridiculous. You know, look at all that God created for our enjoyment. And when people understand that, they will flow to it, they will be drawn to it, they won't be able to get enough of it. 
Verse 2, many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You know, they will desire to walk in His paths. That's not something that they desire today. You know, today, Satan has got them confused. They really don't want to walk in God's paths. They want to bless Him to bless them in their path. They don't realize it's the wrong path. And yet this time is coming. Verse 3, He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears and the pruning hooks, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. You know, what a wonderful time that we look forward to. What a wonderful time. That as God's way is understood as it is applied, war will be a thing of the past. There won't be any more. Verse 4, Everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the, word of, the, mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. You know, it talks about a time of great abundance that naturally flows as a result of following God's law. That the festival tie that we have just enjoyed the use of, the special abundance that we have at that time of year, it's but a taste of the abundance that God has in store for us ahead. You know, God's way is where the best always is ahead. You know, the climax is never behind us. In fact, we're told that of the increase of His government, there will be no end. We're never going to look back and think about all the good days when it was, you know, when we were really at the pinnacle. No, that that is ahead. It gets better and better and better. You know, as we read these verses throughout the year, and you open the paper, you turn on the news, and you see the great contrast. You know, here it talks about a time when they're not even going, you know, their, ag, their, their implements of war are going to be turned into implements of agriculture. You couldn't even use them as implements of war anymore. You know, it's not like they're going to be hanging, uh, you know, in the back shed just in case they need them again. They're going to turn them, they're going to repurpose them. You know, a total commitment to a new way of life. You know, what a contrast. In today's paper, the front page, there was an article about uh, the, the tremendous number of young widows being widowed as a result of our nation being at war. In Iraq, at war in Afghanistan, the toll that that takes. You know, and here we have an understanding, we have been privileged to know that there's coming a time when that's going to be over, finished. We're going to have a hand in that. We look forward to that. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. 
You know, that as we read these verses throughout the year, it helps us visualize our goal. It helps us think about it in practical terms, in terms of of our daily lives. It's something that we yearn for, to draw close to, to be a part of. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. His delight is the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. You know that when Jesus Christ returns to establish His government, He's going to make righteous judgments. It's not going to be based on who does the best job of telling their story first. It's not going to be about who puts on the best show. You know, He's the one who knows the hearts, knows our innermost thoughts. Imagine what this world will be like when that form of government and judgment is applied. You know, too often we have headline stories about judges accused of doing the opposite. You know, some sort of malfeasance. Abusing their position. In verse 6, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Even to the animal kingdom, will this peace be extended? You know, right now in in our yard, we've got some trees in the backyard. We've got some bushes. And I've had to teach my girls about looking out for snakes. Because right now, this is not an age where they can play on the cobra's hole. And... We live in an environment where there is danger sometimes all around. And yet we're looking forward to a time when that won't be. When that will be passed. When that will be over. And they won't have to worry about walking and perhaps you know, seeing a, a poisonous snake. They won't have to worry about uh, coyotes. My youngest daughter has a um, a fearful fascination for coyotes and uh, an interest in them. And uh, you know, the time is coming when even the animal kingdom will be at peace. We look forward to that. 
We long for that. Let's go over to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. In Jeremiah chapter 31, we're going to to begin reading in verse 31. We read, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. You know, imagine this time that's described when people won't say to their, to their neighbor, Know the Lord, because they will all know the Lord. When people won't ask you, Why don't you eat pork? Why don't you do such and such? They will know and they won't eat it either. You know, on this this feast, I had an opportunity to go snorkeling and I found a clam. And as I was holding it in my hand and uh, in kind of shallow water, it would open up and, and then it would close. And I just had to wonder about the thought that went through the mind of the first person that tasted it. <laughs> You know, as I looked at that, I I wasn't tempted in any way. I didn't think, wow, I wonder what that tastes like. (laughs) You know, the time is coming when everybody will have an understanding. It won't be some that only the precious few have. It'll be something that everybody has. Everybody will have that understanding. Think about the difference that that will make around the world when everybody knows. You know, employers won't have to worry about employees stealing and cheating. Makes me think of the uh, the story, I think this was in Reader's Digest some years back, about the uh, the teacher went around the room and she asked, uh, you know, what does your daddy do, and, and what does your daddy do? And they were telling about what their daddy did for a living. She came to one little kid, and he said, my daddy makes light bulbs and toilet paper. She thought, that's really unusual. Uh, <laughs> how do you know? <laughs> how do you know that this is what he makes? And he said, uh, well, uh, that's what he brings home in his lunchbox. <laughs> it is, you know, daddy was a petty thief. <laughs> You know, the time is coming when everybody will serve their employer as they serve the Lord. The time is coming when there won't be criminals. When there won't be strangers. You know, with our small children, we have to teach them about strangers. 
because we live in Satan's world. And yet we look forward to the time when it'll be, you know, when Christ was a small boy, it was a, you know, just a shadow of that. You know, remember his, his parents lost track of him for several days? Several days. And when they, they realized that they went back looking for them. It was a different time. You couldn't do that today. We long and we look forward to the time when it will be that way. And everybody will have an understanding of God's way. You know, at the, the feast, uh, one of our, our friends was telling us about uh, their little child they lost track of for three seconds. They, they turned around, and he was gone. And they went out, and, and this little kid knew all the entrance and exits for the building, and he had made a beeline out towards the parking lot where the parking attendants had a knowledge of God's way. And they stopped the little boy and they, you know, held, <laughs> held him there. And so when the, the, the father came out, he was glad to see that, oh, there's the son, safe and sound. You know, the time is coming when that will be practiced universally around the world. What a wonderful time. You know, we enjoyed fellowshipping with the brethren at the feast. All of us having an understanding of God's Word. All of us having an understanding of preparing for our part in God's government now and in the future. You know, we look forward to the time when everyone will have that understanding. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You know, we know that we have been called that our purpose is to reign as kings and priests with Jesus Christ at His return. That we will be administrators in the government of God. And yet as we think about how precious that understanding is, how few have that understanding now, how privileged we are to have that understanding we should remember why it is that we have been given this privilege. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. No, we're told to you know, look at ourselves in the mirror. Look around the room. See who else we're here with. Verse 27, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world, the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. God didn't call His precious people from among the movers and shakers of this world. He didn't call us from among the elite. He didn't call us from 
the cream of the crop, the, you know, the, the very top layer of society. He called us and our brethren from the base, from the foolish. So that what we were able to accomplish, we would understand, and everyone else who looked at us would understand, it's not by my might. It's not from within. It's from God's Spirit. You know, we have been given a special privilege. A privilege. Out of all the people on the face of the earth, think about how few really know the meaning and purpose of life. How few have had their mind open to understand God's Word. You know, God's Word produces results. And as we apply it, it keeps us from many of the pitfalls in life. From many of the scars that come from those pitfalls. When you talk to somebody who has come into understanding God's Word later in life, they frequently say, I wish I would have known this years ago. I could have avoided a lot of pain and suffering. I could have avoided certain mistakes. And yet God has given us that. Not because we woke up one morning and figured it out for ourselves. We know that He must draw us. We can't come on our own. The event that we were at was by special invitation only. How many people on the face of this earth, if they understood the benefits, would long, would desire deeply to walk in those paths now? You know, we have really been given a very, very, very precious and special gift. And it's important as we reflect on that that we also remember with humility why we have it. Not because we figured it out. Not because we're better. We understand from these passages that we're not. We have it because God has called the foolish to put to shame the wise so that no flesh should glory in His sight. And with that understanding, we are preparing for our future roles as kings and priests, administrators in His government. Let's go over to Deuteronomy chapter 17. A passage that describes God's instruction for the king. You know, we are preparing now for the fulfillment of what this Sabbath day pictures. We are preparing now for the fulfillment of what these fall festivals look forward to. A time when we will be kings and priests. Let's notice the instructions that God inspired for the king. Deuteronomy chapter 17, we're going to pick it up in verse 15. 
You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. So God begins by describing that the king was to be one that he chose. You know, the people don't choose. God is the one who does the choosing. We are preparing to be kings and priests. God has chosen us, set us apart for that purpose, preparing us now for that role. You know, God's government has always been the same. He didn't suddenly change His model of government. The pattern is very clear. God is the one who chooses. You know, it begins with the instructions here. Then He goes on further. You know, those who had that office, they were not to get distracted by silver and gold and horses and wives. The things of, of, of physical abundance that the other kings multiply to themselves, that those that God set over His people were not to have that approach. They, it was not something that they were to use their position for self-aggrandizement. Verse 18, Also it shall be when He sits on the throne of His kingdom that He shall... See, God's instruction is not just what you don't do. And He says, stay away from these things because they will distract you. They will cause you to stumble. But it's not just a way of thou shalt not. It's also a way of thou shalt. He shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from one, from the one before the priests and Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So God's instruction for the king was that they would study God's Word daily. You know, brethren, that's an instruction that applies for us. We're not to multiply for ourselves wives, silver and gold and horses. You know, instead, we are to today study God's Word on a daily basis so that our heart is not lifted up, so that we have a humility. A humility that comes from understanding our role and relationship with God and with our brethren and with all who were created in His image. A humility that also comes 
from an understanding and an application, a careful application of all of His words in our lives. You know that our approach to Scripture, I was talking with somebody who's not in the church recently, and he was telling me about somebody who uh, had his, his own special version of the Bible. And uh, this guy had gone through and just torn out sections of Scripture, and so he had kind of an abbreviated uh, Bible, one that uh, had parts that he liked and didn't have the parts he didn't. And, uh, you know, what confusion! You know, that's not the approach that we're to have to God's way of life. The guy telling me this thought this was a great idea. <laughs> what planet are you from? <laughs> you know, God's Word is what keeps us safe and sound. You know that our understanding is we study God's Word so that we're familiar with it. So that when we come to the choices and junctures in life, that we have something to draw on for guidance. That when we ask counsel, as the Scripture instructs us to do, that we have something to measure it against because we're familiar with God's Word. It doesn't eliminate the need for counsel. It means that we have something to measure it against. We're able to discern counsel. But you get a multitude of counsel. Some of it might not be good. We're able to discern because we're familiar with God's Word. We're able to understand how to apply it. We ask God for inspiration and guidance, and He's able to bring to our memory passages that we've read and studied. He's able to turn the light bulb on for the things that we've already read. You know, I'm sure you've also had the experience where you've read something and you thought, you know, this doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. And so you go to your Heavenly Father on your knees and you cry out to Him and you ask Him, for understanding. And you go on. And you reread it and you restudy it. And He gives you that understanding. And He turns on that light bulb. And it may be in your personal Bible study, it may be when you're in services, it may be when you're reading a booklet, it may be whenever. But God's able to turn that light bulb on, but it comes from a familiarity with His Word. That as we prepare for our position as kings and priests, that the instruction is one here for kings. We apply that in our lives. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. You know, God's Word has a lot to say about government because it's the foundation that allows for all of the blessings and the abundance that comes. It's what makes it possible for there to be those blessings. And yet the government that He will institute is unlike any government that's ever been practiced by man's civil systems. You know, there have been a lot of different forms of government. A lot of different ways to get it wrong. So God describes here in great detail what is needed. 
Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know, this is the, the approach that we see around, and this is the approach that comes carnally from within. And as God is preparing us for a very heavy responsibility, and He is working with us to ensure that we are prepared and we'll be able to administer it in the right way. That it won't go to our head. That it won't cause us to go astray. That we won't cause others to suffer. Verse 2, Then Jesus called a little child to Him and set Him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as a little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So here the disciples are worried about who's going to be the one in charge. Which of us is going to be bossing around the others? And Christ says, you know, unless you're converted and like a little kid, you're not even going to be there. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 20. You know, the disciples didn't really get it out of their system. They didn't really understand it quite yet. They're still laboring under this concept of who's going to be in charge. In Matthew 20, verse 20, 20, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. You know, they're still worried about the answer to the question that they asked earlier. Who's going to be in charge? And they asked the question and they didn't get the answer they wanted, and so they asked again. And this time, you know, they got mom involved. Tug at the heartstrings, maybe get special favor. And yet, you know, certainly when the ten heard it, they were uh, greatly displeased with the two brothers. You know, none of them at this point really had the right idea. That's why the other ten were indignant. It wasn't a righteous indignation. It was a, you beat me to it. You cheated. So notice what Christ says. Jesus called them, verse 25, Jesus called them to Himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. And yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. You know, the complete contrast between the government of God, which we see in action in the church, and in families in the church who have an understanding of God's Word. And we look forward to the time it will be same government, same structure, when it will be applied and understood around the whole earth. You know, not a a government of aggrandizement, of pride and haughtiness, a government based on service. You know, as a, as a loving father and looks out for the needs of the family and serves the family, 
just as Christ set an example. You know, here was God Almighty sitting beside the Father on a throne in heaven, prepared to empty Himself and appear in the flesh alongside, you know, those that were created in His image. You know, to suffer all the indignations so that we might be able to be a part of His family for all eternity. You know, that that's the attitude of right government. That's the attitude that Christ exemplified in action on this earth. That attitude of service is what exists in a, a perfect and a loving Father, and, and none of us fathers you know, physically exhibit that perfectly. But we can understand it. You know, that the role of the father in the family is not to, oh, look at me! But instead to look out for, to provide for, to help those that, he, that are under his charge. You know, that we're learning this approach now. At this time, we're beginning, we are making this a part of our character, part of who we are. Not just what we know, but what we are on the inside so that we will be of use, that we will be able to be used in that way. Remember the example of Moses? You know, someone that God used in a very unique and special way. Moses ahead of time had a sense of his destiny. And yet, until he was... Filled with meekness. He was not someone that God was able to use in that way. God worked with him. Humbling him. Helping him grow. Spiritually. For 40 years. Unlearning that Egyptian approach to government. So that God could then allow him to fulfill his purpose in life. You know, we have a sense of our purpose in life. And it's something that does and should give us great peace. That we know our purpose in life. And as we know that, then we can prepare for that. Recognizing the humility that's needed. Let's go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 Notice something that Christ revealed to His disciples. In John chapter 14, he is, uh, this is prior to His arrest and crucifixion. He is preparing them for what is going to come. In verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in Me. In my Father's house are many mansions or offices. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, 
there you may be also. Christ was telling his disciples that it was needful for him to go. You know, they had enjoyed the tremendous blessing that was, you know, seeing and handling the Savior. You know, having that, that relationship, that personal relationship with Him. And yet He was preparing to go and return to the Father. And so He was preparing them for that reality. And He revealed to them that in His Father's house, in His Father's government, that there were many offices and that He was going to prepare a place for them. You know, have you thought about how that applies to you and I right now? That as the Father and Jesus Christ sit on their thrones in heaven, and they have drawn us to them, they have opened our minds, lifted the veil, that Satan has used to blind all of mankind. They've lifted that veil so that we might understand God's Word, that we can apply it in our lives, that we can prepare for our destiny as full members of God's family. That as they have called us to them, drawn us, us to them, that they are preparing our place. Our office, our responsibilities, our exact job title. We don't know what that is right now. But he says, I go to prepare. That it is being prepared. It is being decided actively at this time. You know, as they work with us molding us, fashioning us, guiding us, directing us. And as we respond, they are looking at us, working with us, determining, deciding our responsibility, our job title. You know, as we think about that, we can think about the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. You know, it's important we have been given something exceedingly great of value. That we're doing all that we can to multiply those talents, to develop it, not just to return what was given to us, but to develop it into something greater. You know, God gives us a measure of His Holy Spirit, but like a muscle, It must be worked and developed to make it grow bigger. You know, God's Spirit doesn't make His way of life easy. It makes it possible. There are times when it's still difficult. And yet, as we exercise right judgment, as we exercise and use and rely on God's Spirit, He gives us a greater measure of it. He pours it out upon us in abundance as we use it and as we ask Him for it. You know, God has given us, let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3. God has instituted to keep us on track, to keep us focused on His purpose 
on His plan in our lives and for all of mankind. He has instituted reminders. And we have a weekly reminder, a weekly Sabbath, where we come before Him, walking with Him, learning ever more fully to walk in His paths, fellowshipping with others of like mind, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And He's also instituted annual reminders through His holy days to refocus us on His plan, the various components of that plan, the various parts of that plan. These reminders refocus our attention. They remind us of things that we learned before, but we need to be reminded of because either they slip from our memory or because we're caught up in other activities. It needs to be refreshed. It needs to be revived. It needs to be renewed to refocus. Let's notice here in 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Peter is saying, I'm not telling you something new that you never heard before. I'm stirring up your minds by way of reminder. It's important to review. It's important to review. You know, as great as this feast was, you know, many of you can think back 20 years. And how many people were celebrating the feast at that time? And yet, because they grew tired of reminders, because they grew tired of review, they were led astray. Verse 2, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of our of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last days, walk according walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. You know, in our time today there are scoffers, and they abound. And yet we are, are challenged to remember that, you know, we were told that there would be scoffers. In verse 5, that they are willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished and being flooded with water. You know, there is the evidence all around that this earth did not just happen over time. It just happened this way. There are lots of pieces of evidence that point to a Creator God. That point to the events described. There are 
archaeological evidence pointing to the events described in this book that we can know with certainty. And there are those who are willfully ignorant. They choose to ignore the evidence of the flood. They choose to ignore the evidence of certain events described in Scripture. It's a choice. Verse 7, But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Verse 8, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and as a thousand years is one day. In other words, never lose sight of the fact that no matter how long it seems, you know, there are times when it seems like it goes quickly, and there are other times when it seems we can get discouraged, and we can think, oh, it's just taking forever. Do not forget this one thing. You know, God looks at time very differently than we do. And He is working out a purpose actively. Verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, when it seems like it's taking a while, we should remember why. You know, God's purpose is that all should come to repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. You know, God is the one who declares the end from the very beginning. That from the foundations of the world had a plan. Had a plan from the very beginning. And He said it, and it will happen. And then it will come as a thief in the night. It will catch everyone by surprise. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. The things around that look so permanent will pass away. They will be no more. Therefore, verse 11, since all these things will be dissolved, you know, when we think about that fact, that these things that we see around that look so permanent, some of which seem so enduring, they're going to be dissolved. They're going to... You know, then that brings to mind this question. When we see that, what manner of persons ought you to be in a holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You know, as we think about the fact that this earth is coming and its systems will come to an end, the systems of our adversary, they will be dissolved and a new system will be put in place. It makes us think about preparing. 
makes us think and have a zeal and a deep desire so that we are a part of that system. You know, we return spiritually very well fed. We return from the feast filled with excitement, filled with energy and enthusiasm and drive. Let's make sure that we channel that into action and movement in our lives. More determined in our preparation for the fulfillment of the days that we just celebrated. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. Therefore, or 17, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen.